Welcome to Fleet Baptist Church. We hope you enjoy the latest in our teaching series. Well, thank you for joining me for our second session on preparing the bride. Uh, I hope you've managed to um, take much on board from our last time together, but I want to launch straight into this second session because really we're now getting to some very important areas of what I believe to be what the Holy Spirit is emphasizing to the church, the Bride of Christ, how it can prepare best for the return of the Lord Jesus Christ, the Bridegroom. I want to start off by reading a passage of scripture, and that's found in the book of Revelation, chapter 19, verses 6 through 10. Then I heard what sounded like a great multitude, like the roar of rushing waters, and like the sound of peals of thunder, shouting, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty, reigns. And let us rejoice and give him glory, for the wedding of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. Fine linen, bright and clean, was given her to wear. Fine linen stands for the righteous acts of the God's holy people. Then the angel said to me, write this. Blessed are those who are invited to the wedding supper of the Lamb. And he added, These are the true words of God. At this I fell at his feet and worshipped him. But he said to me, Do not do that. I am a fellow servant with you and with your brothers and sisters who hold to the testimony of Jesus. Worship God. For it is the spirit of prophecy who bears testimony to Jesus. This is an amazing passage. It comes after the destruction of Babylon and there's this great celebration in heaven and a declaration that the wedding of the Lamb has come. This is a Kairos moment. This is one of three main themes in this passage of scripture. The Kairos moment is the wedding of the Lamb has come. Now is the moment. The fulfillment of history is about to take place. And the second is the bride has made herself ready. And the third one is blessed are those who are invited to the wedding. Well, the Kairos moment, the wedding of the Lamb has come, is preceded by the bride has made herself ready. The bride has made herself ready. And I recall my own wedding day when I stood <clears throat> at the front of Hereford Baptist Church along with my family and Karen's family waiting for her to arrive. She was 20 minutes late and I was really beginning to panic. But nonetheless, the organist started to play, the congregation stood up and we all turned around to face the incoming of the bride. And there she stood, to me, the most beautiful woman in all the wide world. And she was dressed in the most beautiful wedding gown, her veil, it was just a sight to behold. I was so overwhelmed with love and gratitude that she had gone to such a great extent to prepare herself for this momentous occasion. I kind of feel that I wouldn't have been that impressed if she turned up in a pair of tatty old jeans, greens between her teeth and her hair all disheveled. I would have thought, well, this doesn't mean very much to her. She's not putting much effort into this. How much do I mean to her? But by the way she did present herself, she'd prepared herself very well for our wedding day. 
And the third stage, blessed are those who are invited to the wedding. I have to be honest with you, wedding should be, um, or invitations to a wedding should be a call to intimacy. It's family and the closest of friends, the people we share life with. My oldest daughter, when she uh, was planning her wedding, her and my wife uh, came to me and he said, um, what's the budget? I told them what I thought the budget should be. They both burst out laughing. My wife took me to one side and said, sweetheart, it's going to be at least double that. So I guess my prayer and fasting um, time increased considerably at the run up to my daughter's wedding, particularly as she had traveled Europe and Asia, just about every person she had ever met seemed to get an invite to come to her wedding. There was hundreds and hundreds of people on this invitation list. And I was a little bit panicky, if I'm honest with you. But my prayers were answered, hallelujah. And most of those people couldn't come because of the distance that they would have to come from different countries. So we did have close friends, family. It was an intimate do, although larger than I had originally anticipated. So the wedding has come. This is the Kairos moment. The bride has made herself ready. That's important. And that's our commission right now is to prepare ourselves for the return of the Lord Jesus Christ. Because blessed are those who are invited to the wedding. And we have been invited to join in this marriage supper of the Lamb. So let me take a moment and look at each of these in turn. First of all, the wedding of the Lamb has come. The wedding of the Lamb has come. Now, weddings in the Eastern tradition in the times of Jesus uh, can be illustrated to us in Matthew 25, verse 1 on, where we read, at that time, the kingdom of heaven will be like 10 virgins who took their lamps and went out to meet the bridegroom. You see, there were three stages to the marriage from beginning to completion. Uh, the first stage was betrothal. It was when, in the culture of the day, when uh, a, a man would like the look of a girl and his parents would talk to her parents and they would arrange for this marriage to take place. And if there was an acceptance of their offer of betrothal, then it became at that moment a legal binding agreement. And I believe that's what happens when we come to faith in Jesus Christ we give our life to Christ. Christ has already given his life to us and he invites us to come into an eternal relationship with him and it is legal and it is binding. There is a covenant sealed through the blood of Jesus sealing us into Christ Jesus. So there's offer and acceptance, but then following the betrothal is a period of waiting, of preparation, a tension in the air, and anticipation. And as we read in Matthew 25, there was the arrival of the bridegroom, which is the second stage, where the bridegroom would come down the road with his entourage and knock on the door of the bride, and the bride and her entourage would come out, and the two together would go into the third stage. So the second stage is the actual arriving of the bridegroom. I believe that is the return of the Lord Jesus Christ to planet Earth. Um, to take his bride unto himself. And we see that stage is uh, illustrated in the story of the ten virgins. Five were wise and five were foolish, of course. But they went into 
the marriage supper of the Lamb, which is the third stage, or in the Greek, the gamos, which is the actual joining of the husband and wife together, and they enter into the marriage supper of the Lamb, which is a great celebration, a great party, if you like, of everyone being so delighted at what has taken place. So what I believe is that the primary focus and objective in the Holy Spirit's mind and activities at this time is pointing towards Christ's return. In the Greek, it is called the parousia, the physical, literal return of Jesus Christ back to this planet Earth. And we will join him and enter into the wedding supper of the Lamb. The bride returns for uh, the bridegroom returns for the bride. What a privilege it is to be chosen to be part of the bride of Christ. This is and will be a Kairos moment. The time is at hand. Now is the season to get ourselves ready. Now, how the bride makes herself ready is very important. And I believe that preparation for a marriage is far more important than the preparation of the wedding day. And the many, many people that my wife and I have done pre-marital counselling with, we always say, the wedding is a day, but marriage is your lifetime. So you do best to invest in your marriage, the lifetime, than just look at all the trimmings of a wedding day. But nonetheless, most preparation goes into the wedding day itself, no matter how hard we try to work uh, good foundations into a couple's life. None. So here we have it. The, the, the bride makes herself ready. And I believe that there are four primary emphases on preparation. And they are holiness, healing, intimacy, and preparing as a priority an end time army. And I'll, I'll just touch on these four. But because of time we're unable to expound these uh, adequately just in the time we have together today. So my book on this subject Preparing the Bride goes into this in far more detail and hopefully this message whets your appetite to actually explore this a bit further. Four primary emphases on the bride making herself ready This is the priority of the Holy Spirit, I believe, and it's our job to line up with him. First of all, holiness. Holiness is the very nature of God. If you don't like holiness, you won't like God. If you don't enjoy holiness, you will hate heaven, because heaven is full of the presence of a holy God. It is the very nature of God. And this is to be reflected in the heart of man as we are the image and the likeness of him and redeemed humanity by the power of the Holy Spirit should be revealing the true nature and character and qualities of the divine. It is the non-negotiable in the kingdom of heaven. Our standards versus God's standards is often in his intention. There's our... um, Our ethics, there's our values, but then there's God's ethics and God's values. And holiness is about us being transformed into Christ and taking on all of his values and his holiness. 
there's always a temptation to compromise um, the sin in our life rather than having a dread of it or even a fear of it. Desire of God must always be to bless uh, him by our behaviour, but he will never ever divorce himself from his true nature and his true character. Worship, of course, is about holiness. Praise actually is us declaring the greatness of God. Thanksgiving is acknowledging the goodness of God. But worship is encountering him in his holiness. We're told in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 25 through 29, that the time will come where there will be a great shaking, a great shaking. I want to suggest to you that we are in the beginnings of the great shaking, where everything that we have held precious and dear by way of religious construct and and, um, and, and sacred cows and uh, idolatrous things that we think are part of the kingdom of God will be shaken and they will fall to the ground so that only that which is of the kingdom of heaven will remain steadfast and sure. So don't be afraid of the shaking. Embrace the shaking because embracing the shaking means all that is unholy will be shaken out and only that which is of God will remain. We need to embrace the call to true holiness, the refiner's fire, the testing, both personally but also corporately as the bride of Christ. We will be challenged with the true issues of our heart, which is our attitude, our motive and our true character. We'll be challenged as to who we actually are rather than how we would like people to perceive us. And so I leave those thoughts with you about true holiness being part and parcel of God's end time scenario for his bride. Isaiah 35, if you would take time to read that, speaks of our highway of holiness. And I believe that that highway of holiness is what we are all on at this time. The second emphasis, I believe, is one of healing, healing. Now, healing is very close to my own heart because I have known personally the miraculous supernatural healing of God in my life. And by his wonderful grace, I've seen many miracles of healing and restoration through my life, touching the lives of other people. This is a work of God. And my life text is Isaiah 61, those first four verses about the spirit of the sovereign Lord being upon me for he has anointed me to preach the good news to the poor, to heal the brokenhearted, to set captives free, to open the doors for prisoners and to open the eyes of the blind. So I see that the whole restorative nature of God is found in Messiah. The whole healing character of God, the whole activity of God to bring into wholeness as well as holiness through healing is very much part and parcel of the Messiah's um, priority. And this is what Jesus said when he quoted Isaiah 61. He said, this day, this scripture is fulfilled in the midst of you. And we know that it's God's redemptive plan to bring wholeness, healing, holiness, spirit, soul and body to our lives. 
You see, healing is a hallmark of Jesus's ministry. Invariably, where Jesus is, there is healing and deliverance. In actual fact, he said, if I cast out demons by the finger of God or the authority of God, then you will know the kingdom of God has come among you. So when I first got saved back in 1975, there was not a lot of healing that took place. There was the, the great tent and crusade evangelists from America in particular that had a hallmark of healing on their ministry. But in my experience, the church I was raised in, healing really wasn't part and parcel of its culture or its expectation. There would always be a vague hope of prayer that God would heal people that were sick, but truly our expectation was that they would die or suffer. Now is very different. Now there is a real heartbeat for healing in so many traditions in the Christian faith. So many are desiring to set up ministry teams. So many healing centers have been set up around our nation, for which I thank God for. And so I'm seeing that in this end time, God is revealing himself because of his healing ministry into the lives of broken and damaged people. So healing is very important. The third area of primary focus, I believe, that the Holy Spirit has on us as the church today is that of intimacy, that of intimacy. In Matthew 15, verses 8 and 9, Jesus said these words, These people honour me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. They worship me in vain. Their teaching are rules taught by men. And I'm reminded also in Revelations chapter 2, those first seven verses, where Jesus is speaking to the church at Ephesus, and he says to them, you know, I, I recognize that you're concerned that uh, that you expose false prophets and that there's evil, you, you get rid of that, you're hardworking, all these things are great. But there's one thing I have against you, you've lost your first love. Or as one translation puts it, you don't love me as you once loved me. And so I believe that it's possible in our religious institutions, even though we don't like to think of them as that, that is often what they become, we lose sight of the person Jesus. We lose sight of him, and he's often replaced by our branding or our church name or denomination, that that in itself becomes an idol and replaces the person Jesus. Our vision can become idolatrous. Our strategy, our work, our ministry, our what we're building Even our own self and our own ministry can be, uh, we lose the the sight of Jesus as a result of the priority of this in our lives. Now, what I believe is that there is an easy road that we can veer onto, and that is using Jesus as a means to an end to bless us, to provide for us, to empower us, to try and achieve good objectives. But we've lost sight of him. We've lost our first love. And a priority at this time is returning back to that first love. Because if we do not, according to Revelations 2, Jesus will come and take our candlestick from its place. Not talking about salvation. I'm talking about 
the glory of God, <clears throat> the, the Shekinah, the anointed presence of the Holy Spirit in the midst of us. A challenge I've often brought to churches is this. <clears throat> if the Holy Spirit wasn't here, what difference would it make to what we do on a weekly basis within our churches? How dependent are we upon the Holy Spirit? <clears throat> How much do we love Jesus? What if Jesus took all of our ministries away? What if we, we didn't have the buildings? What if we didn't have the reputation? What if we didn't have people requiring us to minister into their lives? What if all that disappeared? Would Jesus still be there? Or would we be growing bitter and twisted and all, we, all the things we could have been has been unrealized? When in actual fact, Jesus calls us to be a son, first and foremost, a daughter, first and foremost. And therefore, Jesus says, how can you say you love me, whom you've never seen, uh, if you don't love one another? So this invitation to intimacy with God is paramount, <clears throat> vital, but also intimacy with one another, going beyond just meeting at religiously organized meetings for prayer and Bible study and worship or whatever it might be, evangelism, but actually learning to be community, love one another, care for one another, and really, really support one another. With regards to relationship with Almighty God, I'm reminded of Revelations 3.20 is a scripture that many have used in evangelism, but it was never written for non-believers. It was written to the church. And the, the Revelations 3.20 says that Jesus comes to the door and he knocks on the door and he says, whoever hears my voice and opens the door and lets me in, I will come in and fellowship with them. Notice he doesn't say, I will come in and empower them. I will give them great ministry. I will <clears throat> do this, that and the other to make them look good. What he does say <clears throat> is, I will come in and I will fellowship with you. I will be with you. I will presence myself with you because that's the foundation. That's the very bedrock. That's the substance on which we build is our intimacy with the person Jesus Christ and we let him into our hearts and lives and then we work with him in partnership we follow his initiative we follow his leading in these things so this invitation to join Jesus in intimacy an invitation to be closer to one another is paramount at this time we must go beyond professional association and networking as leaders just to see how we can use one another to promote ourselves and come back to an interdependence with one another and upon one another and genuine love and care might be evident there by this by this will all men know that you are my disciples is when you have love one for another the final area of the priority of preparation, I believe, is found in Ephesians 4, verse 11 through 13, where we are taught that God has given to us gifts. There are people that are gifts, apostles and prophets and pastors and teachers and evangelists, to equip the saints, to equip the saints for works of ministry. <clears throat> and I believe that this is so important in these last days 
what we've known historically is these ministry gifts have become objects of reverence, revered ones within the body of Christ, who entertain us in one form or another, or impress us with one form of act of supernatural ministry or another. But in actual fact, these gifts primarily are to teach, train and equip the body of Christ, the bride, into effective works of ministry, to build us into unity, to build us into maturity, that we might truly be the body of Christ here on planet earth, that we might be the expression, the hands of God, the mouthpiece of God, that we might be light in darkness, we might be the fragrance of Christ changing atmospheres, that we might be expressing the missional heart of God of heaven here on the earth itself. And this is not going to be done by a few superheroes, but it's going to be done by the army of the Lord, ordinary men and women, children and elderly people, whoever has a heart is to enter into the school of ministry that equips the saints for life, not just to live in this religious bubble, but that we might be turned inside out, that we might be salt like yeast in the world, that the kingdom of God may advance. But we need to equip the saints to know how to move naturally in the supernatural. We need to equip the saints to be able to live life in the marketplace, to live life, an abundant life, and not just in a holy huddle, a religious bubble. That's the training ground. That's the Bible college. That's the boot camp. So God's trying to raise up an end time army. Therefore, just in conclusion, I would say as leaders, our prime role um, has to be working in cooperation with the Holy Spirit to prepare the bride for the bridegroom. And therefore, we must line up with his agenda and not try to squeeze God into fulfilling our agenda for him. The Kairos moment is it's now Now we need to start getting on with it by omitting irrelevant, energy-sapping, time-consuming activities, no matter how nostalgic we feel about them, no matter how idolatrous they have become. And we need to see that laid down that we might reshape and enable our churches to fulfill God's agenda, holiness, healing, intimacy, and equipping an end-time army. The Kairos is very closely linked to the Rema, the now word of God and the now activity in God. So they're so key to true fruitfulness because it's not so much what God has said, as important as that is, but what is God saying now? What is God requiring of us now? And how do we best respond? Now, this is my life call And this is my primary focus in these days, and that is to come alongside and help churches in preparing for Christ's return. Let's pray together, shall we? Father God, in the name of Jesus Christ, we recognize that we're living in a chronological season, 
in a season where you are seeking to prepare the bride internationally for the bridegroom. You are coming back, Lord Jesus. And we say, Maranatha, even so, come. But Lord, I pray that you would help us, but especially leaders, to capture this vision that the priority of the now is not our empire, but about your kingdom. It is about pouring our lives into the body of Christ so that we might equip them to become effective disciples of Jesus wherever they have been planted. And Father God, would you help us to repent of our idolatry of our church, our vision, our brand, our name, and that, Lord God, we might embrace the name of Jesus and seek to lift him up high, that, Lord God, we might encourage people to be followers of him and not followers of us. Father, I pray that you, by the power of your Spirit, would so anoint us, that you would so inspire us into holiness, into healing, and into intimacy with you and one another, and to be part of this rising up end-time army. Because I ask it, Father God, in Jesus' name. Amen.